to, to teach in his absence. And, um, Power right. button. Thank you. Power button. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one, turn it on. <laughs> ah, yes. A, a blessing to have people in your life who... It was you know, on the side. Yeah. <laughs> who graciously help you in times of need. Um, since we're, we're sort of, uh, as Phil said last week, uh, we don't really have a theme that we're working on, uh, so I took the liberty of just doing something totally different. Um, and uh, so I thought we'd look at the book of Jonah today. It's a pretty short book. We can do it within a, a single setting. But to get us to start thinking about the message of Jonah, I thought I would start with another biblical illustration that I think many of you will probably be no doubt familiar with, um, and that is the, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son story? It's a very familiar parable that Jesus told in, in Luke's gospel. And um, if you notice, it's grouped with another, a few other parables, the lost coin and the lost sheep. And uh, the whole point seems to be uh, driving at the older brother. Remember the older brother who, who is really pretty mad because his younger brother has gone off and wasted all the dad's money. And now he's come back and the dad's welcoming him in. Have you ever really, uh, have you felt sympathy for the older brother? Yes. When you read that? Yeah, see, I have too. And, you know, people who go to church rather often, uh, as, as is the case for most of you here, right? Uh, we tend to read that story and think, well, the older brother has a point. <laughs> because a lot of us, you know, think of ourselves as something like the older brother, right? We are trying to do the right thing. We are trying to avoid being like the prodigal son. And so... Why should gods be so welcoming to these people who are so wasteful, right? That's what prodigal means, wasteful. And uh, so it kind of, it's, it's a jarring parable in some ways. But of course the point is to show you that that's how much God loves everybody. God loves everybody to the point where God would forgive and draw people in even though they, they didn't deserve any of it from a human perspective. And that, that's kind of the message of the gospel and that's the good news that you don't get punishment from God if you're willing to come back and say, I'm sorry, I've messed up. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your own children. And that's really the point of, of the prodigal son, isn't it? Well, there's a, there's a real interesting theme that we can see in the book of Jonah that has an interesting connection with the, the prodigal son. Because Jonah, we'll see, is very much like the older brother. He's kind of mad that God would be forgiving to somebody, to a group of people that he didn't really think deserved it. So let's, let's turn to, to Jonah and, uh, and read. If you have your Bibles or if you, uh, if you have it on your phone or wherever, uh, you might want to follow along because we're going to read almost every verse <laughs> today. So we'll see if we get through it. So let's begin. Um, I'll read it for us. Uh, we'll read the first six verses of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. When the Lord sent a great, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Okay, well, let's think, uh, think about a few things here. 
Um, some of you probably know that Jonah shows up as a, as a historical person in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 14.25 says that he is, uh, he is one of these prophets. But it's very brief. We don't know much about him. And we see here that in, in, the, um, in the story, we don't, we don't learn a lot about him either, about his background at least. We're in the 8th century in Israel, so during the reign of Jeroboam II, so sometime you know, in the 700s. And, um, but what's interesting is that Jonah looks nothing like an 8th century prophet. If you look at all the other 8th century prophets, like Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Amos, Jonah looks nothing like them. He doesn't talk like them. He doesn't approach the world the way they do. It's very interesting that he doesn't fit at all. Why does, uh, uh, what, what's Nineveh? Anybody know? Why, why, uh, why Nineveh? Anybody remember from flannel graph days? Of <laughs> Did you teach Sunday school with the flannel graphs? Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, Nineveh is the capital of, of Assyria, and so uh, they would have been their enemies at this time. So in the 8th century, Nineveh is the capital city of, of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So think of capital city of your enemy, and that's, that's, the, that's the punch of this uh, command that God gives him. Go to the capital city of the people who have been harassing your own people and preach to that city. So that's, that's, uh, that's the punch of, uh, of the call to go to this, uh, to, the, to this capital. So we shouldn't be at all surprised that Jonah's not terribly interested in this, right? I mean, they're his enemy. So why would he uh, want to go preach God's message to those people? So what does he do? Well, he goes in the opposite direction, right? He goes down to Joppa, which is where Tel Aviv is today. It's on the coast. And there's all, if you read commentaries on the book of Jonah, uh, there, there's all this discussion about where is Tarshish? Is it Tarsus, where the Apostle Paul grew up? Or is it Tarshish, the place in what is now Spain? Or is it somewhere else? And I've always found that kind of amusing because it doesn't matter, right? It really doesn't matter where Tarshish is. Because when you get on a boat near Tel Aviv and Joppa, what way can you go? There's only one way you can go, right? West. <laughs> and Nineveh's east. So it, we shouldn't get bogged down on where Tarshish is. It doesn't matter. He's going the opposite direction that God told him to go. That's the point. This is how much he dislikes uh, the, the Assyrian people. So he's going the opposite way. And then we have uh, the reason why. God says that the, uh, the wickedness of, of Nineveh has come up before him. And uh, so he's supposed to go there to get, the, so the message will be repentance, right? Repent, do the right thing, don't, be, don't do wicked things. Um, but Jonah, of course, is going in the opposite direction. Uh, and if you, okay, so think about that. I mean, God, Jonah is defying God openly, right? He's been given a direct order, and he's doing the exact opposite of that order. So he's defying God. But contrast Jonah with the sailors. What are the sailors doing? Did you notice this in the reading? They're praying to their gods. So see, they're, they're, they're kind of pious people. They look like they're doing the right thing. And here's Jonah defying God. You know, he's supposed, to be the, he's supposed to be the spokesperson for God. He's running away from God. And here we have these sailors um, being so pious. And I don't know if the, um, I mean, what's your take on sailors? Like if I said, you know, paint me a picture of an ancient sailor. 
what kind of person would they be? Yeah, probably kind of rough, yeah. And I don't know if that's a, I mean, because we, we think of sailors like in the 20th century context. Some of you might have been in the Navy, don't want to insult anybody here. But, uh, you know, our Navy types, are you a little rough? I don't know. I'm, uh, but, you know, that's the reputation that, that sailors get, right? Whether that's true of 8th century sailors, I don't know. I, my, my guess is that that's probably true. Uh, so you have this contrast with a guy that you would assume would be a God-fearing person contrasted with these sailors who have a reputation for not being God-fearing. Or at least not being, you know, the kind of people you'd want your daughter to marry, right? Uh, they're doing the right thing, and Jonah is defying God. So you have this interesting contrast here that's, uh, you know, I think worthy of note. Well, then you have one of the, the chief, it's the captain, or in, the, in Hebrew he's called the, uh, the, the chief of the rope. <laughs> I, guess that, I guess that means captain, I don't know, but um, that's where we get, you know, learning the ropes. You know, the, the old... Uh, the old phrase, learning the ropes, is an old naval, um, a naval phrase. Because you had to teach young men how to you know, stay away from the ropes because you get tangled up and then you end up in the ocean and be dead. But anyway, the chief of the ropes comes to him and chides him for not praying at a time like this. And you'd think of all people, a spokesperson for God would know, you know what to do in a, in a moment of distress. So um, they're in this storm and... Uh, they're, they're getting desperate, right? Because they throw everything overboard. And when you throw everything overboard, I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you're, you lost all your profit right there. The whole point of the trip now is gone. So you're pretty desperate at that point. So, okay, so we get, we get that, that much from Jonah. Let's, let's move on to the, um, to the next uh, set here. Let's read 7 to 17. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea, the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will, be, it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that, this great, that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then the Lord, the, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so we pick up our reading there, and they're casting lots, right? You know how this works, right? Basically drawing straws to figure out, you know, who's, who's at fault here. And, of course, Jonah ends up with a short straw. So um, uh, they realize then, okay... Um, Here's the problem. And he's already told them that he's, in fact, running away from God, which is kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, what, would you tell people that? Like, you know, God, God appeared to me and told me to do something. I just said, forget it, God, I'm not doing it. I don't know why you'd be proud of that. <laughs> but in any case, Jonah has told them that, uh, you know, that, maybe that speaks to the level of his defiance. I mean, he's so defiant, he's even telling people about it. So uh, he's defied God, and now uh, this storm has come up. Um, but, but what's interesting here, I was thinking about this, I was preparing this the other day, um, 
Think of the implications of his defiance. The text says that God caused this storm. And by his, by his defiance, Jonah has not only put himself in jeopardy, but he's jeopardized the lives of these sailors. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting how sometimes defying God can have bigger effects than just, just ourselves, right? It can hurt other people. So he's put them at risk. But then we get this interesting, uh, this move here where Jonah asks to be thrown into the sea. Um, okay, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it looks to me like he would rather die than do God's will. I mean, for example, why, why didn't he think, or why didn't he think to tell the men, listen, um, I've defied God, but I realize that's a bad idea. Let's go back to land. He doesn't seem to, that's not his idea, right? Now, they end up trying that, but that's not his initial idea. His initial idea is to throw me in the ocean, which in the ancient world, that's suicide, okay, because nobody can swim in the ancient world. In fact, 19th century sailors couldn't swim. Did you know this? I mean, most people working on ships in the British Navy and the American Navy, they couldn't swim. And that's why so many of them died. You fall in the ocean, you're dead. So, uh, so when you throw somebody in the, in the water uh, in the middle of a storm, I mean, you're, you're killing them. But that's, that's his initial response to how to solve the problem. And I think what that tells us is that's how deep this guy does not want to do what God wants him to do. He'd rather die than do what God wants him to do. And we'll see this theme coming back. The, the suicide theme through Jonah uh, uh, comes back at least two more times. Well, so they don't do that. And again, you get this contrast with the piety of the sailors. The sailors are good people. And you think about that, uh, again, that's probably not what we think sailors would do. I wonder if we would do it today. Uh, but think of, again, think about the scene. You've got these sailors who are probably pretty super, superstitious. I mean, everybody in the ancient world is superstitious. But when you're in the midst of a storm, you're really superstitious. And when you draw straws and it falls to this person who admits that he's defying God, that's a pretty easy conclusion, right? But he wants to be killed. And the, and the men, though, are so pious that they're, they don't want to do that. They say, you know, that's not right. We don't, we're not going to kill you. So they try, right? They try to row back to land, but of course they can't. So it's at that point they throw, uh, they throw him in. And, uh, and they realize what they're doing because they pray to God, please don't hold this guy's blood uh, you know, to our, you know, on our account. We know we're killing him, but uh, he asked for it. So, uh, why didn't he just jump? Yeah, why doesn't he not just jump? That's a good point. Um, there's a Hebrew word here for the ship, and it seems as though the ship had decking on the top, like a roof. So maybe he had to climb up to get out. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's a good point. Uh, he could have just done it himself. But in any case, he ends up in the water, and, um, and look at what the sailors do after they throw him in. Not only do they pray to God, what do they do? Do you remember this? They vow vows, and they offer sacrifices. Now, I don't know how you offer a sacrifice to God in the middle of a rainstorm. Uh, and where do you get the animal to sacrifice? I have no idea. This is an interesting fish. point of the story. They're offering fish to God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but this is the length to which these, these guys are trying to show, again, some level of respect for God. Again, in absolute contrast to Jonah, who is defying God. All right, um, let's move to chapter 2. But we're not going to take time to read it because we don't have time. And because it's a, it's a prayer, it's essentially a psalm, if you look at it. It looks, like, it looks very much like what a psalm would look like. And so we get this idea that, God, that, that Jonah comes to, he sort of comes to a moment of repentance inside the fish. 
and he, you know, he cries out for salvation. And, um, and so again, you know, take time to read chapter 2 this week if you have a moment. But let's go to the end of, of chapter 2 and, and pick up where, uh, where our story sort of takes up again. And so the last uh, verse says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay, so fish has got him back, you know, to where he was supposed to start his journey. And, uh, and we'll see what happens now. So let's read, uh, let's read chapter 3 now. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God, and they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything, nor uh, let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone urgently call upon God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger that, and so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Okay, um, so Jonah's back on dry land, and now he's going to be obedient. Because God has sent him to Nineveh, and now he's going to go. Which is probably what most of us would do at that point, right? I mean, you've, you've defied God, you got in a ship, you went the opposite direction, a storm blew up, and you would rather die than do what God said. But even you got frustrated in that. That's got to be terribly frustrating. You want to die and you can't even die. Can you imagine that? You're not even in charge of your own existence you know, in this story. God saved him from killing himself. So he's got to be terribly frustrated, but he's back on dry land, and so he says, I'm going to do what God asked me to do. And he goes into Nineveh, and uh, how would you describe this sermon that he preached? I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of used to it. <laughs> it is. It's fire and brimstone for sure. Uh, you know, we're kind of used to like a 30-minute sermon in the Protestant tradition, right? If you grew up Catholic, you know, you're used to like a 10-minute homily. Um, but how long is this sermon? It's five words in Hebrew. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. That's almost five words. So shortest, probably shortest sermon in history, right? But think about the effect. What's the effect? Uh, everybody repents. Everybody says, wow, I'm wrong. I've got to change my life. Uh, how many other biblical prophets can uh, boast that level of success? Zero. Yeah, nobody. Nobody's that good. Um, and notice how it starts. It starts at the grassroots level. Right? The people hear his message. And... It, it, it spreads like wildfire. Now everybody's repentant. They, uh, they put on sackcloth and ashes. You know, they put on like burlap bags and throw dirt on their, themselves and dust as a way to show their, their um, contrition. And um, so, yeah, they're, they're embracing 
uh, Jonah's message. And then the, the message gets all the way to the king. And again, ask yourself, how many times does a prophet in the Old Testament speak to a king and the king repents or you know, does what this king does, listens? It's not zero, but it's close. I mean, most kings in the ancient world especially, they're, they're not terribly interested in repenting. Because I mean, that shows weakness, so you don't want to do that as a dictator, which is what most ancient Near Eastern monarchs were. Um, but here you have this imperial... I mean, he's an emperor, right? He's over the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and he is moved by the message of this prophet that has spoken a word of, of a message of five words. Um, again, unheard of, almost unheard of in the Bible, but he does. And again, contrast that with, with, with Jonah. Right? You get these, these people who are the traditional enemies of Israel who are repenting at the most... Uh, Again, how would you characterize his sermon? It, it, it could not have been terribly nuanced and polished, right? It's, it's not a sermon that you think would change people's hearts. But again, contrast the people who now are repentant all the way up to the king and his nobles. Uh, again, it's great. It's unbelievable. <coughs> contrast that with the prophet who has, again, defied God. So... It says in verse 10, in verse 8 and 10, it says that the king tells the people to turn from their evil ways. And what's interesting is that we're getting this word play in Hebrew that uh, we're going to see plays out in the end of, of, of the chapter, or end of the book, where the word for evil, we've already seen it with Nineveh, right? When God says, go to Nineveh because their evil has come up to me. Well, here now the king is telling them to repent of that. And we'll see how that works out. And just in chapter 4, we'll, we'll see how it all comes together. Okay, so let's pick up our reading uh, in 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed up the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And Jonah said, I do. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And that's how our book ends. Sort of open-ended question, you know, from God. 
Well, uh, so Jonah is upset because the people listen to him. And again, ask yourself, how many biblical prophets uh, responded this way when they preached? And again, you're hard-pressed to find an example. Uh, now, you find them upset because the people don't believe them, right? Uh, you've got a number of examples of, of uh, those kind of situations. You know, Moses is you know, bothered by the fact that people aren't listening. But here we have the opposite. The people have repented all the way up to the king, and he's even got the animals dressed up in sackcloth and, animal, and, and ashes. And I think that, had, that must have been funny in the ancient world. It's hard to know about humor, you know. It's, it's hard to know. Have you ever watched like a British sitcom that was supposed to be funny? And it's not funny. <laughs> so it's hard to know. I mean, sometimes British humor doesn't quite translate, and the same is true for American humor. So it's hard to know, like in an ancient context, was dressing up an animal in sackcloth and ashes, that's supposed to be funny? Um, I think so. Um, and this is why YouTube exists, right? <laughs> Cats and dogs in pajamas and uh, other sailor suits. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's supposed to be funny, but that's sort of beside the point. Um, so the animals are in sackcloth and ashes as well, and Jonah is mad. And he uses the same word that I mentioned earlier when it talks about the evil of Nineveh and the fact that they repented from their evil ways. That same word is used to, des to describe Jonah's feelings. So in your Bibles it would say something like, and this greatly displeased Jonah. That's how it's translated. But you could translate it as, this was wicked. This was a wicked thing that Jonah experienced. It's exactly the same word. So he's pretty upset. And, and why is he upset? Especially related to God. Why, how is he upset? He thinks God is too merciful. That's right. That God is a softy. That God would rather forgive these people than destroy them. And I think it's clear that he would rather God destroy them, right? In fact, after they repent, notice what the text says. It says that he went out from the city to watch and see what would happen. So I think what we're supposed to get from that is that he really wants to see the fireworks, you know, God zapping Nineveh, right? So he goes out from the city to get you know, away from the blast zone and hopes to see God um, you know, rain down fire on these people who are his enemies. And then God asks him about it, right? God comes to him and says, hey... Uh, do you really have a right to be angry? And what, what's Jonah's response here? Yes. You bet I do. I, I do have a right to be angry. And then we see that theme of suicide again, right? He says, in fact, I'm so mad, I really would rather die than live. And uh, again, I think we're supposed to see a bit of a contrast here with Elijah. You may remember when Elijah was fleeing from Ahab and Jezebel, in 1 Kings 19, he says something similar to God. He said, I would rather die because nobody's really listening to me. I've preached and I've, I've tried to do the right thing and everybody's just following after Jezebel. And so he says, I would rather you take my life because I've just been a complete failure. Jonah is the opposite of that. He wants to die because he's been so successful. <laughs> so, um, and then he gets a, an object lesson, right? from the vine. And the vine grows up. And what does the vine do? 
the vine relieves him from his discomfort. And the word discomfort is the same word that's used of the sin of Nineveh. It's, it's a word in Hebrew that has a very broad meaning. It can mean tragedy, calamity. It can mean evil. It can mean discomfort. It's used to describe the sin of Nineveh and the fact that they repent of that in chapter 3. It's also used when the sailors draw straws and they ask, we need to find out where this calamity came from. Same word. And it's used here of Jonah's discomfort and it's also used of Jonah's describing Jonah's feelings about God's willingness to forgive. It was terrible to him, or it greatly displeased Jonah. All five or six of those occurrences of that word, it's the same word in Hebrew. And I think that there's an intentional play on words here to make this point, that God is about dealing with all of those things in our world. God is about dealing with wickedness. Certainly he wants the Ninevites to repent of, of doing bad things. But he also is not terribly interested in calamities, destruction. He even wants to relieve his own prophet's discomfort from the scorching wind and the scorching uh, sun that comes out. So he provides for him this vine to take away that thing that we've been talking about, the discomfort, the evil, the horrible thing. God is taking that away from him by providing this vine. But then God allows the vine to die to illustrate Jonah to Jonah, what, uh, I mean, well, you, you tell me, what, what's he illustrating with the, the demise of the vine? Who's in charge? Okay, yeah, so God is, God is in charge of all of this, yeah. What else about the vine, you think? The death of the vine, what he is that? He didn't appreciate it either, seems Yeah, that it... It was a gift from God, right? Because he didn't do anything to plant it. It just popped out of the ground and provided shade. And yet, when God took it away, he was upset. But, when, but, but God, as a creator God, has created this vine as a gift to Jonah. God is also the creator of all humanity. But Jonah is upset when God is not worried about dealing with their problems. But he's all happy when God is dealing about his problems, or dealing with his problems. When God takes away his discomfort, he's happy. But when he deals with the evil or the wickedness of Nineveh, he hates it. So it's trying to illustrate to Jonah the hypocrisy of somebody being willing to accept the graciousness of God for themselves, but having absolutely no interest in God doing that for someone else, especially as someone else who he doesn't like and who he, doesn't, who he thinks does not deserve it. You see the point? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what is uh, happening here. Well, the, the suicide theme again is shown again. Uh, he, he mentions it twice more. And would rather die than see God be gracious to people that he didn't think deserved such, uh, such love and compassion from God. Well, so um, this is really the message of Jonah. Do you have questions or anything about it? I might have gotten in too big a hurry because uh, maybe we should have read the song. But do you have questions? Yeah. Does this relate to the brother that stayed home? It, it yeah. seems like this is more complex. Well, yeah, yeah maybe it is. Um, I think at the end of the day, Jonah and the older brother both, to me, uh, are a little bit upset 
that someone who is not deserving in their mind of God's love get God's love. So just as the older brother sees his younger prodigal brother, wasteful, going off and just blowing the, the family estate, he comes back and the father, remember the father sitting on the front porch looking for the child, right? And when he sees him from a long way off, he goes to him. And when the younger brother hears about the party, uh, sorry, the older brother, sorry, the older brother hears about the party, he won't even come in. The parable, there's a lot of interesting details in the parable, but the older brother won't even come in to the, the house to where the celebration is taking place. And so the father goes out to him too. So the father goes out to both children. And when he goes out to the older brother, the brother says, this son of yours who has squandered the family wealth, you have welcomed him back. See, he doesn't want him to receive any grace from, from his father. And if you look at, at Jesus' parable, those three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son, uh, it's done in the context of a discussion he's having with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who probably were a little bit upset that God would have compassion for anybody but, but them who looked like them, right? Because this, this is what we know about the Pharisees, right? They're, they're pretty, they're pretty straight-laced and hard-nosed. They want people doing exactly what they say is right. And they don't like anybody, you know, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. This guy that, the, the kind of people that Jesus hangs out with, they don't like it that those people are getting the attention from somebody who's doing miracles and generating a lot of buzz and making it look like God cares about these people. Sinners, tax collectors, these horrible people. They don't like it. So Jesus tells them this parable. This is, this is what God is like. And the whole hypocrisy of it all is, is that he says when, when a person loses a coin, they turn the house upside down to find it. And they're greatly, they're really, they're super happy that they found it. And then when a, a shepherd loses a sheep, he goes, he really risks the 99 to go out and find the, the one. And when he finds that sheep, he's happy. But when God finds a lost person, People like you are mad. Why aren't you happy that in the eyes of God, this person has been delivered? They were lost and now they're found. And so that's the point he's making to the Pharisees. You get upset when God finds someone who's lost in his mind. But you're angry when this is happening. So I think that's kind of the point that's being given to Jonah too, that he is, uh, he's like that older brother. He doesn't think the Ninevites deserve God's love. And so uh, he'd rather die than see them receive God's grace. But God gets to the end and says, shouldn't I be concerned about this? I appreciate the question, though. Um, anything else about, uh, yes, about Jonah? The Ninevites just assumed that what he said was true, this stranger that came into the I guess so. I mean, it's an odd story, isn't it, that these, these, uh, these people would actually listen to someone like that. Were the Ninevites Jewish or Hebrew? Or? No, they're, um, I mean, they live in what we, what we call Mesopotamia, in between the two rivers, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates. Basically, what is Iraq now? Nineveh is, is uh, Iraq. I think it's Mosul. You may have heard that in the news from time to time. It's near Mosul, I think. Uh, but yeah, so they're, they're a group of people that lived, what, more than a thousand miles from the, the Israel borders. So yeah, they, have nothing, they had no reason to trust a God of some backwater 
you know, from their perspective, some backwater outlier group of people like the Israelites. Jason, would they have heard about the fish, you know, would they have heard this, would they know that right, yeah. he I, had overcome great yeah, odds? Right. Yeah, right. It's hard to know, like, how much they knew about his, uh, uh, you know, his experience, you know, in the fish or whatever. Um, what we do know about ancient cultures is that they're very superstitious. And when you get things like, a, like an eclipse, for example, in an ancient culture, that can really transform uh, people's thinking pretty widely. And so it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think you could probably find uh, evidence of, uh, of people changing their mind about something very drastically on the basis of an experience like that, something they could not explain, you know, like, a, like an eclipse or like an earthquake. Uh, so maybe there was more to the story than we're told. You know, imagine, for example, an earthquake happening right before Jonah preaches. You know, maybe that got everybody's attention in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. I don't know. Uh, we, we don't have those details. So, um, so there, yeah, there are a lot of mysterious things, right, about, about the story. What happens to Jonah after this, after the story? Do yeah, we, no, we, we don't know anything else about him. Uh, the fact that it's in the, the Bible this way it makes me think that probably Jonah learned, right, learned from this. And uh, um, you'd like to think that that was the case, that he, he came around to seeing it from God's perspective. But, uh, but we really whole, don't know. Through the whole Bible, God has always used very unlikely people to get his point across right. and all that. So, um, I mean, if he had chosen somebody who was a good person, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't be the same. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of places in the Bible where God uses people who are, you know, yeah, surprising. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, the, the whole Bible is that way, if you look at it closely. Um, how, many, how many of the patriarchs do things that we would sort of look askance at and think, mm, probably shouldn't have done that? You know, Jacob is a liar. Abraham's a bit of a liar. Isaac's a bit of a liar. Jacob is a trickster. He's a cheat. Uh, he makes deals with God. Um, God, if you'll bless me, I'll, I'll believe in you. But I'm not sure otherwise. This is what he says in, in, in when he, he sleeps on the rock, you know, the pillow behind his head. He's making deals with God. So there's a lot of people in the Bible that they don't come off looking good if you look at the details of their life. And Jonah is just one more of them. You know, just like us. And that's the point, isn't it? Isn't that a comforting thing? That yeah. God can actually use people like that. And so in many ways, we're all Jonahs. We're all the older brothers. And, um, you know, it's kind of... It's a it's a it's a difficult moment to look in the mirror and admit that, but I think the more I think we probably should, we should resonate more with the older brother and Jonah and realize that that's not what God is doing, rather than resonating with the other characters of the Bible. I think we should be willing to say, yeah, we might get caught up in Phariseeism and uh, jealousy. and jealousy and 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 fear that God is going to bless people that we don't think are quite deserving. That's how. Wonderful God is. Would they have recognized Jonah as the enemy? That's a good question. I don't. I think that they probably would not have known what to do with him. It would be like, uh, you know, it, from the biblical perspective, we think of Israel as being this well-known entity in the ancient world. They're not. They're barely on the map for anybody in Mesopotamia, in Nineveh, Babylon. 
These are big cities in Mesopotamia. They were probably urban. They, were, they probably had everything that you associate with those kind of things. So it would be like somebody from, in the American context, it would be like um, somebody from Guatemala showing up in Washington, D.C. and preaching a sermon in Spanish. How many people in D.C. are even going to listen to that, right? That's how, that's how much of an outlier he probably was seen as. Uh, and even in Spanish, it probably wouldn't work. If he spoke like an indigenous language from Guatemalan Indians, that would be the analogy. <laughs> they would not even know what to do with this guy. But maybe somebody translated it, and it worked <laughs> somehow. I don't know, but it's a very interesting question. I don't know why they would have any reason to, to listen to this guy. But it, but it is a great story. Um, just to, to, to wrap us up here, um, so uh, it, to me this is an interesting connection between the Old and New Testament where you have God working through people throughout time and all the way into the days of Jesus where he too is working through some, some interesting people, right? And uh, so when he has Jesus uh, tell this parable about the, the, the older brother that looks a lot like the Pharisees, it looks a lot like the people who think of themselves as pretty good people, not really in need of God's love so much, but, uh, and, and tend to be a little judgmental about everybody else, that message is, is, a, is a timeless uh, message of Jonah, but also the older brother. And even when Jesus calls his followers to love their enemies, I mean, there's a little bit of that going on here too, because Nineveh is the, the, the enemy of Israel. And uh, this prophet just can't stand that God might love the very people that his people don't like at all. So when Jesus says, love, love your enemies, it's not the first time God actually said that. It goes all the way back to Jonah. And it's a, again, it's a timeless message for all of us to wrestle with. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and what it, how it teaches us and shapes us. And we pray that you'll help us to be uh, those kind of people this week that um, can celebrate your love for all people. And... Uh, and be happy when you uh, bring good things to people that maybe from our perspective we don't think deserve it. So uh, transform our hearts into what you want us to be and uh, help us to be those kinds of people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Incredible job, Jason. Thanks. As always. Thank you. Uh, too interesting to want it to end. I started to stop you, and I thought, I don't want to stop you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thanks to Elaine for the wonderful refreshments that have been brought. Uh, excellent job. Excellent job. Um, on concerns this morning, um, I don't know if any of y'all are aware of it, Gene Barrett fell last night um, and had a Friday night, excuse me. Um, had a very serious fall. Um, she's got to wear a corrective brace. She's still in the hospital. Um, uh, to my knowledge, didn't break anything, but she I just... Did. She fractured her first cervical vertebrae in two places. Very serious oh, thing. Very serious. Oh. Very serious. And because of her overall condition, they could not do surgery. Bless her heart. So. <laughs> still dealing with a big blood clot in her leg. Right. Steve had been... Uh, texting back and forth with me and kind of keeping me where, abreast where she was at. Um, and that's, that's very unfortunate. I hate that she's, um, that's serious.
and serious, um, especially to crack those areas. Um, Pat, where's she She's at? She's at the med center, but no visitors. Yeah, strictly no visitors. I do know that. And they are going to try to get her home as quickly as possible because she, her immune system is so compromised, they don't want her in the hospital with all the infection uh, and all that. So. Uh, wow. mm. Very serious time. Um, any other concerns?